Good morning, Lake Avenue family. We're the Cronks. Uh, this is my daughter, Hannah, and my wife, Carrie, and I'm David. Uh, our scripture reading today is found in Mark 11, 1 through 11, and 15 to 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. They left Bethany and entered Jerusalem. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, David and Carrie and Hannah, Hannah, both for reading and praying today. Uh, Welcome back from Asia. And you're doing better. We've been praying so much for you and just great to have you home. Church is better when you're here. So this is Palm Sunday. And one thing struck me is that in my many years in Chicago, um, well, we usually had to use plastic ones. We didn't have all that many palms in Chicago and it's kind of, kind of good to be able to act, actually have real ones that are there. And, of course, when you come to Palm Sunday, you get near the end of the Lenten season. And it brings us also, as we've been looking at Jesus' journey, that he began up in Caesarea Philippi and he kept heading toward Jerusalem and kept saying he would die. Uh, we've been following that week after week after week. And in, in the series has been called Jesus Christ, Life Changer. So today, as we come to the last message in this series, I thought I needed to conclude by asking just a simple question, and that is, what on earth would ever motivate people like us to be willing to change our lives and surrender control of our lives to anything or anyone else, uh, even God himself? Do Do you remember what Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said about us as human beings? He said, human beings change not much faster than the geological formations of the earth. That's not all that fast, in case you, in case you wonder. 
So most people say that there are two larger categories that cause us to uh, be willing to change. One is fear, and the other one is love. Uh, we all know how the, uh, fear, and some, its more positive aspect is respect. How that can cause us to change. We've all experienced that. And any of you remember in school when you had a really tough teacher who said, "Listen, if you don't get that paper in tomorrow, you're going to flunk this course." Some of you are nodding already. You've experienced this. And uh, if, if if you have any respect, awe, or fear, you get that thing done, don't you? And that continues on throughout our, our lives. Sometimes you get a boss that says, there's this project, it's got to be ready by tomorrow or else. What, what did you sing, Jeremy? There'll be consequences. We'll have a talk. Yeah, well, serious talk. And uh, usually if we want to keep our jobs. You see, we're motivated sometimes by fear. And the more positive side of that is, is respect and awe for the person. But I think, I think the more powerful motivation is love. Uh, you know, I like to read. I like to read stories that come from all over the world and throughout history and in every culture that I know of. There are stories, there are novels uh, that are written about people whose lives were changed because we fell in love with someone. There wouldn't be any chick flicks. There wouldn't be any romance movies. They all have the same theme, don't they? Someone falls in love. And suddenly a person who is one way begins to become a different way. When we truly love a person, we want to please that person. I, I thought I'd need to show you at least one little clip of one because it will help you to remember this. And I'm going to bring this back again. Many of you have seen this, but I'll let you watch it for just a moment and then I'll come back. The Prince's Bride by S. Morgenstern, Chapter 1. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Her favorite pastimes were riding her horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, how does my horse saddle? I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said to me. Farm boy, fill these with water. Please. As you wish. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. Come, boy. Fetch me that picture. that oh uh, well I've been saying to Chris all week as you wish right 
<laughs> That's from Princess Bride. And it really does drive home that point that when you have a deep love for someone, the desire that you have is to please, which means you say whenever there's something that would please that person as you wish. So there are those, those two motivations, fear or respect on one side, love, the desire to please on the other. But let me tell you this today. When those two things come together, when you have a deep, deep respect for someone and your greatest fear is displeasing that person and a deep, deep love for that same person and your deepest longing is actually to please that person, that's when our lives can change. And that brings us today, believe it or not, to Mark chapter 11. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, it was his triumphal entry and he personally does some things to make it very clear who he is, that he is the king over all kings. So he is to be feared and respected. But he goes into Jerusalem, as he has said three times on this journey toward Jerusalem. He's going into Jerusalem as a king, but he's going there to die for us. See, a king to be respected, a king to be loved. And that's how our lives can change. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. You find it sometimes difficult to have your life actually shaped into what God would have it to be. I want you to listen carefully because that's what I think is going on in this text. So for those who are visiting, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for a long time. So I'll just kind of give you a brief overview. Uh, in Jesus' day, the passion of so many of his fellow Jewish people was that the Messiah actually would come. Uh, their scriptures had prophesied it, but by the time Jesus was born, they were under the yoke of, of another government, and they had a deep longing for a messianic, a messiah king to come and rescue them. Uh, their scriptures, we call it the Old Testament, were filled with all of these prophecies, and they'd gone on for a long time saying that a king is actually going to come, and he is going to make a difference. And then Jesus was born. Uh, reading through the Gospel of Mark, if you look at the very first verse, he's identified, <clears throat> excuse me, he's identified as the Son of God, but also as the Christ, as the Messiah. And then he goes and does battle with the evil one in the desert. He emerges. He calls people to himself. And he begins to do the things that only God can do. And that precisely the messianic king is supposed to do. It's, it's really marvelous. We've been seeing it. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. When storms are there and people are terrified, he speaks a word and they are stilled. He also does some things that baffle them. I mean, touched lepers, blessed prostitutes even welcomed a tax collector into his innermost circle. And he spent time with Gentiles. So they began to wonder, is he, isn't he? So then after this long journey, finally we're getting there. If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 11, Jesus chose specifically to enter into Jerusalem in such a way that everybody would be able to know who he was and respond to him. So that's what we're going to be looking at. It's called the Triumphal Entry. It's a good thing to look at on Triumphal Entry Sunday. It's what Palm Sunday is all about. And we're going to do this. Number one, I want us to think about what Jesus actually did to prepare for that entry that would go into Jerusalem and the temple. Number two, when he got there into the house of God, 
what he saw, what he experienced. And then number three, if you and I have eyes to see who he is, what difference it should make in our lives. Ready to look at that? So first, I want us to pull back to that first Palm Sunday. What did Jesus actually do to prepare for his entry into the temple? And, And my answer, and I think I've written it here for you, he carefully followed the script of Scripture so that anybody who had eyes to see would say, that's what Messiah is supposed to do. So Mark chapter 11, verse 1. So as they, Jesus and his followers, approached Jerusalem, and came to Bethphage and Beth- Bethany, which is on the east side of Jerusalem, at the Mount of Olives, which was along that east side, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to that village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you're going to find a colt or a donkey tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now you can just read through that and... Like last night when I walked into the Saturday night service, we had some brand new churchgoers saying, I've been reading this story. Why on earth did he ride a donkey? And I said, well, just listen to, to, tonight and you're going to see, and you will too. I, I thought I'd just pull up a couple of the prophecies that are there to help you to understand what's going on. In the very last book before Jesus, and, and people who are new to church don't realize, they often think the Bible was all written kind of in the same year. It, it covers centuries. So many, many centuries before Jesus, in the last book of the Old Testament, of their scriptures, in the book of Malachi, there had been a marvelous prophecy that was there. Through Malachi, this is what God had said. He said, the day is going to come when I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So after that way is prepared, then suddenly, and if you know the Messiah, you're going to start singing this song, The Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, the promised messenger, the one whom you desire, he will come, declares the Lord Almighty. Now for us, as we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, you look at chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, and that messenger who will come before the Lord has already come, and that's John the Baptist. And then Jesus had done all the things that Messiah is supposed to do. And one of the things that another prophet, Zechariah, had said is he will come from the direction of the Mount of Olives. He'll come from the east. So here comes Jesus into the city. I thought I should show you a map just so you can kind of picture this. I know our kids waving the palm branches helped you, but maybe this will help you to see it a little bit. Jesus was over there. If you see verse 1 in that Bethany area over here, not so far away to the east. Zechariah had said that he would come from the direction of the Mount of Olives. So there Jesus is now coming in, the Lord, the one that you have been waiting for, the one you have been desired, the one who is going to come from the direction of the Mount of Olives, he is coming in. You see, this is exactly what had been foretold. Don't, don't, can't you imagine that the people were probably pretty thrilled uh, that the same person who had done just countless miracles, and they thought maybe he's the Messiah, is now doing what Messiah has said he would do. I want you to see a second prophecy. If you pull back long, even before Malachi, all the way into the book of Genesis, the first book of Moses, uh, Jacob, one of their great forefathers, patriarchs, at the end of his life, he'd gathered his children together. You know, we, we should do this more often. Sat down with the kids. Let them know what was going to happen. And in verse 1, Jacob called his sons and he said, gather around. 
so I can tell you what will happen in the days to come. And then a part of it down in verses 10 and 11. The scepter, sign of ruling, will not depart from Judah, from our family, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. How will we know him? He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. And then in Mark 11, verse 2, we read that Jesus specifically prepares for a colt or a donkey to be tethered, to be tied, then untied for Jesus. If you go on, you'll see it was never to have been ridden by any person, which if you look in some of the other prophecies, Whenever God is going to have a purpose, a sacred purpose, this is often what he would do. And also kings would ride upon a steed never before ridden. So it looks like a king is going to come with some sacred purpose according to all of the prophecies. You see, if you looked at that and you had eyes to see it and you knew the prophecies that were there and you see Jesus uh, starting to ride in, uh, you have, you're going to yell and scream and shout and throw cloaks and branches. Third prophecy, Zechariah. I was going to ask you for about how many of you have been reading Zechariah this week? I bet not too many. Uh, Zechariah was another one of the great prophets near the end of the Old Testament. He had foretold, and especially at the very end of his prophecy, Zechariah chapter 14, that someday the Lord would come and he would judge evil. He would make all things right, but also he would bring blessing to all nations. In Zechariah 14, 9, near the end, he says that when the Lord comes into his kingdom, he will be king over all the earth. But one of the most striking things in Zechariah's prophecy was found in chapter 9, verse 9, in in which we see that this king, though powerful and the one who can change everything, still is going to come in service and in humility. Look at what he says. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout Daughter Jerusalem, because see, your king comes to you. He is righteous and victorious, but he's also lowly. And how will you know him? Riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. With that in mind, you can just look at Mark chapter 11 and verse 8. Riding from the east, from the area of the Mount of Olives, on a colt, having people before him, And after him, shouting some of these same things, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, rescue us. The people were excited. They they threw branches. They also threw cloaks on the road, which was also in the prophecies. Kings, whenever they were inaugurated, would have cloaks thrown in front of them. And that is what is going on here. They would have seen it. So they were saying and singing the right things. As our kids came in today and we were singing Hosanna, blessed is this one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed, they even saw what what had been prophesied through Jacob. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. I'll tell you, one of the most striking things for me as we've been reading through Mark is that the same Jesus uh, who so often when he had done great miracles and people had recognized something about him that he was the Messiah, he would say, don't tell anyone. We've seen that all through the Gospel of Mark, right? Don't tell anyone. Now this time has changed things. He himself has planned it intentionally so that anybody who would have eyes to see would know precisely who he is. 
He is the Lord whom we seek, who is suddenly supposed to come in from the east into the temple. So, he walks into the house of God with all of these people shouting and singing. What does he find there? Point number two. What Jesus discovered when he came into the king, into his temple, and essentially he discovered, one, no life, and two, no fruit. All right, picture yourself being there. Picture that you haven't heard the cronks reading this text to us. You have everyone shouting. You have the cloaks thrown along the way. You have all these prophecies being fulfilled. And then you come to verse 11. Uh, So Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went back to Bethany with the twelve. What do you think? Is this a downer? Is this what you would have expected? Jesus went into the, the temple after all of this shouting and all of these prophecies being fulfilled, and he found nothing. He found basically nothing, no life that is there. So just trying to think about this, seeing if I could help you. To, have you ever had a time in your life... When you have planned for something, you have anticipated it, you have looked forward to it, and it came, and some of you are nodding already. All week I've been asking people about this, and almost everybody quickly came up with something like that. Blake Raboli, who works with our children, immediately said, prom. (laughs) And everybody I've mentioned this to has, has, has agreed. Have you ever had a certain birthday that boy, you were excited. The big ones, you know, the 16th or 21 or, or 60 or, you know, the big ones where you thought everybody, the whole family and friends are going to plan for this thing. You couldn't wait for the day to come. And then that day came and everybody forgot. You ever had that? Another one that several people mentioned to me is something like this, where there is something you experienced maybe when you were young. All of your life, this was going to be, I don't know, the best amusement park, the best sandwich or cookie in the history of the world. And so many years later, you can't wait. You've been telling your friends, your children about this. And you go back to that place and you experience it again. It was nothing like you remember. If, if you can experience any of that, this must have been what that was like. What on earth is going on here? The prophecies that had been embedded in the scriptures for centuries are at last being fulfilled And when the Lord whom you seek is suddenly coming into his temple, no one is there to see him or experience it. Huge enthusiasm, but for him when he did his miracles, one of the things that also hits me in the Gospel of Mark is that every time he did some great miracle, what were people? They were astonished. They were amazed. So as I look at this, I think... Just being amazed by great miracles doesn't mean you recognize who a person is or that your faith is real in that person. I mean, we've seen that all the time. And it may well be, it may well be that as Jesus came in, they had thought, well, if this is the Messiah, why isn't he bringing his own military? We don't have one. He must be going to go in there and then come out with him. Or maybe they said, what on earth is he doing? He's going to hop off of that donkey, isn't he, and hop onto a military steed. Basically, when you read the Bible, it doesn't tell us why this happened. 
So as I read it, I, I wrote this down for you just to contemplate. When we read this, God's word leads us to meditate on this question of why it is that Jesus went into the very place that the scriptures had prophesied and went into the place where people should expect to find God. He went in and found no life there. I'm going to come back to that, but I'm going to give you a little foreshadowing because the Apostle Paul says that now we become the dwelling place of God, the temple of God. That individually we become the dwelling place of God, but even more that as a church gathering, this is to be a place where God dwells. People of our community should look at this and when they come to visit, they should see the life of God in this place. Uh, and the question that I really have is when people come walking in, do we see what Jesus saw? So he saw no life. And the second thing, he went back again the next day. That time he saw no fruit. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. So Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus now entered the temple courts. Oh, and he began driving out those who were there, who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers there and the benches of those who were selling doves. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Now, it must be hard for us here in Southern California to even envision what was going on there that day. <laughs> what must it have been like? Uh, I, I have a drawing here of the uh, first century temple. I think we could see that. It was a magnificent building. Uh, other temples had been lost, but about 20 years before Jesus, Herod the Great had begun building this magnificent. And it, if you ever go to Israel, you'll see what Israel, Herod the Great built. I mean, they were ornate. They were amazing. This it was a fantastic thing that was done. It was still going on being built in the time of Jesus, but it was already marvelous. The outside section, the larger section, was called the Court of the Gentiles. You couldn't get to what many people considered the important part of the temple except going through uh, the court of the Gentiles. It's the only place where Gentiles could, could even go. And so what Jesus did when he went in, that place where, where Gentiles were supposed to be to go and meet the God who is over all gods, had been turned into a place of frenetic and loud buying and selling. I mean, what Jesus would have seen on that Passover week would have been throngs of people. Because thousands of people came into Jerusalem uh, for the Passover celebration. And there he would find, in, in the court of the Gentiles, because you had to go through that, you would find uh, people there with all of these booths uh, selling birds and, and animals uh, of all kinds. Uh, historians, like, like the historian Josephus, said that as many as 250,000 sheep were sold and sacrificed each week at Passover. What, what, can you think of anything that that would be like? The closest thing that came to my mind was like the Wall Street trading floor. must have been a little bit like the Wall Street trading floor. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been there? I'm telling you, it is loud. It is frantic. Except with this one. You would have had all of the sounds and smells of all those animals and all those birds. And even the smells of many of them being burnt and sacrificed. With that in mind, you've got to remember that throughout all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, God, beginning with Abraham, had said that this people, blessed people, 
would be the people through whom blessing would come to all nations. Uh, they're, they're great prophets, like Zechariah, like Malachi, especially like Isaiah, had said that uh, when the rescuer comes, the people of God would now be able to be available, opened up to all of the nations. I'll just show you one of the places, one of my favorites. Isaiah chapter 56. We read that when the Lord comes, this is what we read. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. But that's not going to happen. My house, verse 7 of Isaiah 56, will be called a house of prayer for all nations. House of prayer, a place where people can come and know God, where people can come and meet God. So do you see what's going on here? What was happening in the, that temple when the Messiah, who was going to open up the people of God, become, make this people a blessing for all nations? What he found there is that the very people who were supposed to be welcomed into the family were being excluded. They were being hindered. In fact, some of the teachers in Jesus' day uh, were saying that when Messiah comes... He's going to drive all of the Gentiles out of the temple. I don't know where they found that in the scriptures. And out of Israel will be freed from that group. But what Jesus comes and says is, don't you know what God has said? My house is supposed to be a place where people can meet me. He had preserved and protected, often through great pain, a people so that the Messiah could be born and bring blessing to all nations And now what has happened is that very place where when he comes, that very place that's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations had become, he said, a den of thieves. That's what Jesus said. I'm sure he means at least two things with that. That you know when all that kind of buying and selling goes on, there's some of that being pocketed. So I'm sure some of that was happening. But I think the much bigger thing is this. That people were being robbed of their opportunity to have a personal experience with the God of the universe. Brothers and sisters, I, I talk about this all the time. But you know, you and I are human beings made in the image of God. We've been made to begin to find life when we have an experience of God when he comes into our lives. I use that quotation from the author George MacDonald so often that when the first thing is put first... Then other things, second things, are not diminished. They are enhanced. You and I have been made to have the first thing be an experience of God. What was happening is the very place where all people were exposed to with the coming of Messiah, be able to have an experience of God, a house of meeting God, a prayer for all peoples. It had become a place robbing people of that experience. Uh, if you'll read some of the texts that I didn't ask the Kronks to read that surround it, look back uh, verses 12 to 14 and the verses that follow. There is a living parable that has confused people for centuries. It's about the fig tree. Do you know this story? Uh, maybe you can look down if you have your Bibles and see it. Jesus walks in toward the temple and he sees a fig tree, which was a symbol of the religious observances of the people of Israel, and he curses it because as he looks at it, He doesn't see any figs beginning to form. He only sees branches there. It looks like there's life, but there's no fruit in that fig tree. Uh, The fig tree is not that Jesus is cursing the people of Israel. Will you write that down? He was himself Jewish. Remember that? As were the the ones to whom the gospel first came. Remember that? (laughs) 
but it was this apparatus that had been there, this whole religious system that was undermining. It wasn't furthering the work of God and inviting people to God. It was keeping people from God. And sometimes when you read it, he said, it says there, well, it wasn't the season for figs. You need to see what's going on. It wasn't yet the season for mature figs, suke. But at this time of year, it was supposed to be the time for pagim, the little buds of figs that were supposedly delicious. But when he went up to the fig tree, he didn't see any pagim at all. There was no fruit on there. All he saw was a lot of things that looked like life, but wasn't life at all. And at the end, at the end of him going into the temple, they walked out and they saw that that tree had died. God was still going to keep his word. His house was going to be a place where all people could meet him and know him. It's a lesson to me. God is going to get his work done. It's a blessing for us if, if we are open to him and faithful enough that he will actually utilize us. The point is that God had always intended for the Messiah to be the one through whom all people would be able to know his presence and his blessing. And even though there was all that activity, religious activity going on, the activity didn't lead people to God. It kept people away from God. Later, the Apostle Paul would comment on this in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just show you this text. Such a clear text. So Jesus came, Paul said. What did he do? He preached peace, reconciliation. To you who are far away, who are the far away people? Many of us, <laughs> uh, the non-Jewish people. And he also preached peace, reconciliation to those who were in here. Those who were of Jesus' own lineage, the Jewish people. For through Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. It's in him that the whole building is joined together. And it's going to be rising. It rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, uh, that's what the house of God is supposed to be. A place where all people can be welcomed. So this is what happened uh, on that first triumphal entry Sunday. Now, this is what happened on the first Palm Sunday. The prophecies were there. Jesus set it up so that everybody could see that they were being fulfilled. The Lord that everybody was longing for, they said they were, was coming into his temple and he found no life and he found no fruit. And yet he still says, through this Messiah, the good news of salvation and an encounter with God is going to come to all people. What do we get out of this? Which brings me to the last point. What should we do when we discover that Jesus is the king we have been made to follow? We have to respond to him as he is, not just to him as we want him to be. See, people are always willing to respond to him if he would do his miracles or if he will set us up as the political leaders or his own disciples. Which one of us gets to be at your right and your left when you set up your big successful kingdom? And Jesus keeps saying, I am the king. But you need to respond to me as I am. I have to be the Lord. I will do something much better than you could ever anticipate. But you just can't sort of reshape me into the one that you can get to do whatever you want to do. So I turn to us and I say, well, then what should we do with this? So here I'll tell you what I want you to do with this whole message. Number one, 
I want you to ask carefully if you see who Jesus really is. Remember, that these people were willing to show up at religious events. And even with Jesus, even to cheer and shout about Jesus, as long as they thought, he'll give me what I want. On this Palm Sunday, we see the people were ready to applaud when he did things that astonished them. But Jesus kept saying, I've come to do something much bigger and really much better for you than just a short-term political victory or giving you a momentary position of influence. He was coming as the true king, but he was the king who knows what we need the most. What do we need more than anything else? We need God at the center of our beings. And that means we need to have our sins forgiven to keep us from God. And then we need to allow God to take residence at the very center of our lives and to shape us. So I'll just ask you, when you look at Jesus, who do you see? Do you see him as the king over all kings, the Lord over lords, who loves you so deeply that he was willing to come and die in your place? But what he asks you to do is to surrender by faith all that you are to him. Do you see him as the one who can give you that life that you so much long for, but that it only comes through surrender to him? So what do you see when you see Jesus? Number two, I want you to consciously and intentionally tell Jesus that you are ready to trust him, to obey him. To surrender all to him. Jesus is the king. That's what he wants us to know. That's what Palm Sunday is about. He is the king over all things in this universe. Remember I said at the very beginning that what changes our lives, Jesus Christ's life changer, were two things. uh, Fear and love, right? And so I just will tell you, Jesus is worthy of our fear and respect. We, we, We need to know that the worst thing we can do is displease him. And again... When we fear someone, um, we, we, we don't want to displease that person. We want to do that. We will say as you wish <laughs> when that happens. And so Jesus comes riding in, and there are no fig trees, figs on the fig trees. And I think it was Jeremy who said, Jeremy, I found out everybody agrees. You were, you're the one who said this. If the king wants figs, we'd better bring him figs. And if the king walks into his house and he wants it to be open to all people, we better be open to all people. Uh, what is that like? Well, the best, being here in Southern California, the best illustration I could think about are, are these uh, riders that celebrities have when they come and put on a sh- Do you know what I'm talking about? The riders, so when you have a famous celebrity or a, a musician uh, come in to do, let's say, a concert, that these are the things that they expect you to do, to say as you wish about. I, I found uh, Mariah Carey's. I'll just show it to you. Um, so, the dressing room in this rider is supposed to be exactly 75 degrees. The furniture in the dressing room cannot have busy patterns. In the room, there must be eight, mark it, eight tall, leafy plants and two vases of white roses. In the room, there must be three bottles of chilled Chardonnay and one bottle of Opus One. Cabernet Savion, 
There must be 12 melon-flavored Gatorade bottles, 12 vanilla protein drinks, four very specific aromatherapy candles, and it, it goes on. Now, if you love Mariah Carey's music and want her to sing her best, you do this. If you fear losing your job, if you don't do it, you do this. Out of respect or fear, we'll do all sorts of things. I tell you today, I just want to tell you today, simply out of respect for the person Jesus is, the Holy One, the the King, the one through whom the world was made, you and I need to be ready to say, your will be done in my life today. You see that? He is the king. When you bring him into your life, the greatest thing to fear is fearing displeasing him. But the thing that I love about being a follower of Jesus is this this same one whom we should respect and fear turns to you and me and he says, I love you with an everlasting love. Do you see that on this Palm Sunday? When Jesus was going into Jerusalem, yes, he was making it known he was the king. But what was he going to do in Jerusalem? Intentionally, he was going to die as a ransom for many, Mark 10:45, he loves us. When we see it out of love back for him, we should say, here is my life. Here's what I want you to do every morning you get up. I want you to say, Lord Jesus, you know I want to run my own life today. But I am not my own anymore. I've been bought with a price. Your precious blood. Do you know that verse? 1 Corinthians 6.20. So Lord Jesus, how would you have me to live today? That's Jesus Christ, life changer. He's the one to whom we will always want to say, as you wish. Just the last application I want to give us. I think in the light of this text... We need to make sure all of our church gatherings are places where all people can meet God. Jesus said, my house is to be a house of prayer for all people. And that has not changed. On that that second day he went into Jerusalem and into the temple, he saw a lot of religious activity out there. But there's no fruit. So... Let's think of our gatherings, uh, your small groups, Sunday school classes, and our worship time. Anything that bears the name that Jesus is Lord of this place. The king shows up. And you know what he says? Anything that bears my name, I want it to be a place for all people. Is anyone excluded? By age? Ethnicity? Whether you have a job or not, a past, of disrepute. Jesus says, I want my gatherings to be a place for all people. We have to make sure that wherever Jesus is named as the Lord of that place, that it is going to be a house of prayer for all nations. Oh, may it be. Now, listen carefully. Sometimes people say, oh, I get excluded from certain church gatherings Because, you know, there's a a part of my life, there's a way of life that you don't like that way of life. And and unless you accept what I do, um, 
then, then you are the ones who are being self-righteous. Listen to me. Uh, that house of prayer for all people was still for all people who would make him their king. And that means that when we are ready to say, my life is yours, the choices I make, you direct them. The way I live my life, my lifestyle, is what will please you. Then for all who will say that, you find in a place where Jesus reigns, a place of welcome. Because Jesus, in John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, put it up here, I think, so that you can see it. Let us know that those who respect him and who follow him, who have placed our trust, our faith in him, well, can hear this. I am the gate, Jesus says. I am the gate. So whoever enters through me will be saved. Hear that. They will come in and go out, find pasture. Thieves, other things that promise you so much in life, they come only to steal, kill, and destroy. They promise you so much they can't deliver. But Jesus said, I'm going to give my life for this. I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. Hallelujah. And those of us who see that on this Palm Sunday will turn to this kind of Lord who is worthy of our respect and certainly deserving of our love. We will turn to him and we will say, as you wish. And we will live to his glory. Amen.